everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of In Media's Mess, where two pop culture nerds try to make sense of the messy world of mass media. I'm Alanis. And I'm Clea. And we're glad to have you along. So by now, you all know that we both love music, but something we feel very strongly about is listening to music from all over the world. So we figured it was time to talk about a thing that people have been talking about lately and we've been a fan of for quite a bit, and that's K-pop. Now, we felt like this wouldn't be a K-pop episode without a special guest. She is basically one of the biggest and longest K-pop fans that we know. Our friend Nana is here, you guys. Hi, Nana. Hi, hello. Thanks for being here. And I'm super happy that I'm here. (laughs) Flattered. More flattered. (laughs) Oh my god, of course, Nana. You're absolutely one of my favorite people to talk to about K-pop. So we are thrilled to have you in this little conversation between opinionated fans. So I think how we got into K-pop has been different for all of us, though the common denominator is it's been a long time. We tend to refer ourselves as, to ourselves as veteran fangirls. <laughs> We're fandom old, you guys. Yeah, it's been a minute. But Nana, I know you've been a fan much longer than I have, but I don't think I've ever really asked how or when you got into it. I think longer than you, Alanis, but shorter than Clea, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Because, like, I started listening to K pop seriously when I was in grade seven. I think that was 2009. It's kind of late because like my best friend who got me into it was into K-pop like a year or two earlier than me. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I got into K-pop afterwards. Yeah, but I don't think it was late necessarily because 2009 was um, the first time that K-pop really made huge waves in terms of global recognition. So I definitely remember a lot of people around grade 7 getting into it and talking about it. I think it was because that was also the time when, like, the Wonder Girls, nobody was such a hit. And then every time I tuned into Mix, the I think it was their, their daily top 20 songs, you would have, like, five K-pop groups already in there. I'm just going to show my fandom age very quickly right now. <laughs> 2009, I would say, was the year that so many Filipinos got into K-pop because of 21. Oh my god, same thought. 21 debuted roughly around that time with the fire and obviously everyone was super excited about Sandara Park. Right. Uh, nobody actually came out in 2008, I think. But this was the year of like the big K-pop song. So nobody and sorry, sorry. Yeah. I think it was Genie. Uh, no, not Genie. Genie. It was Genie. It was Genie. It was both you guys. But I mean, you know, that just proves 2009 was it. Just hits after hits from so many different groups across the board. We're talking like Abracadabra by Brown Eyed Girls, String Ding Dong by Shiny. Plus, you know, groups like FX and 4 Minute and After School debuted aside from 21. So what a year, 2009. Yeah, it was a great year for K-pop. I also agree with you, Clea. I think 21 debuting with Sandara Park was a huge factor in getting Filipinos into K-pop. Because, you know, Sandara was a huge star. So her resurfacing in Korea 
made people more open, more curious, I guess. Absolutely. I agree. I'm sure the media coverage helped amplify the interest that was already there from the hit songs. Personally, that was what happened to me too. Like, I remember watching the 21 debut videos because I used to be a fan of Sundar Park. Like, I'm pretty sure I voted for her in Star Circle Quest. But there you go, the 2009 K-pop phenomenon. I just didn't know, Nana, that that was when you got into it. That means Clea is the oldest fan out of the three of us, actually. Yeah, she. I think she was first. Yeah, I got into it pretty early, honestly. I got into it around 2007. And that was not quite a time where K-pop was a big thing here. So my my fandom experience was largely just me and my sister and me just not talking about it to pretty much anyone. Up until, you know, sometime around 2009 where people were starting to listen to it. So that was a very, like, you know, strange two to three years that I was just kind of like listening to Korean music on the down low. And it just kind of shows how much can change in like, what, 13 years? Introduction to K-pop really started with Super Junior. And I found out about Super Junior through a variety show. They were in SBS's Explorers of the Human Body, which I will maintain is one of the funniest, greatest variety shows ever made. It was not a performing show, you know? But um, there was one episode where they performed their new single. And I just kind of remember watching it and going like, huh, this sounds really cool. And then from there became just like a very big, very all-consuming spiral. So... In terms of fandom age, I am old, old. For me, in fandom years, I would consider myself a teenager. Like I said, similar to you, Nana, I did check out K-pop around 2009 to 2010 sporadically. I remember, again, the 21 videos and the Lollipop um, collaboration of Big Bang and 21. Top tier collaboration. Yeah, it was cute. Yeah, so I did watch 21 videos on the down low, but never really explored the genre until my friends dragged me into it. I would say maybe like late 2013 to 2014. Shout out to Maggie. She knows she ruined my life. Hi, Maggie. She was the one who made me watch a lot of random variety shows. But the game changer for me actually was the airs. A lot of my friends made me watch it and I was not 100% into the story even back then. But I immediately loved Crystal and I found out about FX and then listened to Pink Tape. And it's such a good album. And then like as a finishing blow, you know, they released Red Light, which is really just the most Alanis targeted thing ever. Those two albums back to back really made me listen to K-pop because I realized how good the music was. Right. I think that's the thing about K-pop that a lot of people sort of, at least those who don't really listen to it, kind of, I don't want to say fail to recognize, but like, it's more of like, it's not something that they really think about. In that K-pop is, as a genre, it really just is pop music. It's just really good pop music that happens to be sung in Korean. Actually, I also wanted to ask, like, did getting into K-pop surprise you when you started liking it? For me, no. I grew up on J-dramas and J-music. I'm pretty sure I was listening to like the Johnny's Entertainment when I was like eight or something. It's just, I've been into Asian music for a while when the Korean pop wave sort of came to me personally. It kind of just felt like a normal next step. It wasn't really a shock for me also. 
to go into K-pop because um, right about the time that Cleo was getting introduced to K-pop was right about the time that I seriously started listening and following J-pop. I don't remember the first. I don't remember the first time I I listened to J-pop. Like that is a long time coming. I've been listening to Utada Hikaru since who knows when. That's so cute. But I guess when my friend introduced me to K-pop, it was again like what Cleo said. It's just really good pop music that's sung in Korean. And for me, since I didn't speak Japanese at the time, it was just another foreign language. <laughs> I would say also, I wasn't surprised that I got into K-pop. Actually, I think what surprised me was just watching the entire phenomenon unfold. Mm, okay. Because when you start out, like, as early as 2007, it never crosses your mind that this is something that's going to one day top billboard charts. Right. Or that, you know, people are going to be, like, screaming over. And that was because when I was a fan of K-pop, this stuff wasn't cool in, like, any capacity. So to watch... The growth and evolution of like K-pop as a phenomenon, like as a worldwide sensation, if you will, that I think was the more surprising thing. Yeah, I think the Western hegemony that we grew up in and are still in, it really felt impossible to even partly turn over. So I definitely understand that. But I'm also wondering what it was about K-pop that you like. We mentioned that we genuinely like the music, but, you know, is there anything else? Especially coming from, like, a J-pop background beforehand. How do I describe this? I am picky with songs that I like and listen to. I don't know the science behind it. I, I'm, I'm not a music major. I cannot tell you if it's a, a specific rhyme and rhythm that gets to me. Yeah. But, like, not a lot of songs appeal to me, even if they're popular. I think it happened to be that I listened to the right group of songs. Like, I wasn't into 21, like what Cleo was saying a while ago. Like, I was actually not one of the fans of, of 21 at the start. Like, Fire was not uh, Your thing. my thing. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't right up my alley. Right, right. Same with... Uh, other groups like I don't necessarily like everything that they put out for sure for sure I think I can say that for all the groups like regardless if I stand them or not Mm -hmm. I am very picky with when it comes to songs and I guess it just so happened that I ran into the right bunch of songs like what really got me into Suju specifically for example wasn't Sorry Sorry it was It's You which is an excellent song it is (laughs) (laughs) it really really is but it was definitely not Sorry Sorry like I knew that it was catchy but it was it sorry sorry that got me yeah it was definitely Norago. sorry sorry is a fun it's a catchy song but it's so far from suju's best (laughs) valid and that's fine really like any other kind of music i do think you just find what you prefer music taste is still largely subjective it's one of the things we can actually have opinions on so yeah i get what you mean nana and i also definitely definitely agree that you don't have to like every single thing your favorite artists come out with i know that's part of fan culture lately but i do think that's something older fans really do grow out of because you know discography discourse is so common among fans who have been there for a bit plus generally i would just encourage people to really listen to other stuff other than their favorite artists favorite groups favorite genres 
because it's fun and there's a lot of great stuff. So I hope this fandom culture of feeling like you're being obligated to like everything from an artist goes away eventually, you know. I think if I were to dissect it, I think the sentiment comes from if you are a quote-unquote true fan of the group or of the band, then you must support them no matter what. Yeah, and that's something I don't encourage in more ways than one. But, you know, all of that true fan stuff is a different thing altogether. Suffice to say that I know they're called idols because they're marketed to be treated that way. But let's not actually do that. But what about you, Clea? Was there anything else in K-pop that you liked after discovering Suju in a variety show? For me, it really was just the production value. Like, the music sounded really good. Mm. It was a sound that I hadn't heard very often from a lot of pop music at the time. I think it was because um, around the time that I was getting into K-pop, a lot of pop music from the West, the US specifically, was very um, it was very radio-friendly bubblegum pop, which... Don't get me wrong, I do love that also. But I think K-pop brought a sonic change in music that I really was kind of like interested in and what I really wanted to hear. So at the time, I really was, as in my most played playlist, I remember, was really a mix of just like, you know, US-based tracks and then a couple of K-pop tracks. I was listening to very much like a mix of everything and a couple of J- uh, J-pop ones also. Yeah. So... For me, it was really just like the sound of the music and the quality of the production. Yeah, I do think it was ultimately the same for me. Again, Turning Point was really listening to Pink Tape um, because no question, it's to me one of the best K-pop albums of all time still. Would even go so far as to say it's probably one of my favorite pop albums of all time. And yeah, so from there, I just kept exploring and listening. And like you, Nana, again, found a lot of songs and albums that I really did like within the huge umbrella of K-pop um, because there's really such a huge variety. There's every single genre, um, you know, every single type of concept. And that's why when people ask me who I like, it's so hard to answer because I listen to a little bit of everything. Like, it's easier for me to tell you who I don't listen to. K-pop is really like a black hole to discover. Also, I actually really don't love how all Korean music is lumped into the term K-pop. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, like Korean pop music, okay, sure, like there's a lot of K-pop, right? But then you have like, you have groups like Epic High, you have groups like Big Bang, you have groups like, there are so many groups and artists that are doing such different things that I feel like it's a disservice to just lump everything into like Korean pop. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I do think it's because they're so skeptical of the reasons why people would like it as if it's anything else other than just music and media. Think pieces about like why K-pop is a thing, why people like it, and their conclusion is because, oh, it's like a package deal. It's manufactured. All pop music is manufactured, you guys. Exactly. Every single pop artist from everywhere in the world gets that marketing package. That is what pop music is. So I just get if you and people say that, just because you get the sense of like contempt, like it's such a foreign idea for music to include marketing and visuals and fandom culture and all of that. But it really isn't, it's just pop music. Everyone's honestly just doing reiterations of an idea from a different industry. Like I saw Sean Mendes coming out with light sticks like 
I see you. I see you taking notes. I mean, honestly, the main frustration that I personally have with how K-pop is packaged, if you will, or how people perceive K-pop is that the Western music market tends to treat K-pop as a very, like, exotic thing. And whether that is with or without ill intention, it just, it always feels so othering. Exactly. Especially, like, non-fans. Like, for example, like, Western media. It's, it's difficult because, like, on the one hand, I can understand them just trying to understand something different. But at the same time, it really just turns into this whole thing of you don't ask those questions with One Direction and you don't ask those questions with, like, you know, groups, bands, people who speak English. So it's always just been a frustration of mine that I think part of the reason also why so many people are still hesitant to give K-pop a chance is because, oh, it's such a different thing i feel like it also becomes like a gendered interest so that's super frustrating to me honestly um again there's a contempt for it sometimes subtle sometimes overt i honestly get very uncomfortable when there are pieces about like quote-unquote the dark side of k-pop and like trying to pin all the bad industry practices of the world onto k-pop when there's a lot of exploitation and abuse in industries everywhere It's literally just that you transplant it into a different country. Which goes to show how these things are systematic, you know? It's not like one industry that's the evil, (laughs) that has all of the dark uh, evil things in the world. It's like, it's a systematic thing. I think it's not just media. Like, I remember when I started out in K-pop, like, my family were like, super judgmental about me liking k-pop like they were saying like you don't understand what they're saying why are you listening to it because i can look up the meaning of the words later on and it doesn't discount from the fact that the song is catchy or like the song sounds great i mean don't get me wrong words and lyrics are are important in a song too but it doesn't make or break a song um okay no i could be wrong it could make or break a song (laughs) but like how many generations has it been that we've been listening to music and I'm pretty sure like with classical music and the like, they didn't have lyrics to it. Does that mean that they're not great songs? No. <laughs> For me, it's very much like it's not in English. Therefore, I don't understand. Therefore, um, it's foreign to me. <laughs> That, for me, is the sentiment that I got. Not just from media, like Western media, but like people who don't understand or are not fans of K-pop, for example, or J-pop. Yeah, and sometimes people forget that, you know, post-rock exists, lo-fi exists, jazz exists, and there is plenty of different music everywhere in the world. That doesn't mean music has to have lyrics. It doesn't mean that music has to have lyrics in English to be enjoyed. Like, there's so many different ways to enjoy it. Though, thankfully, I think that kind of thinking has been ever so slowly changing, at the very least in our own little pockets of influence, which is a start. So we've discussed like a whole lot about what we think about K-pop and how it's perceived. But how about the things from K-pop that we wish we saw in other industries or in other music groups?
it's most definitely not a perfect industry either and we're not and we're definitely not here to defend shady things that happen it's still an institution and we all know what we feel about those yeah but yeah Cleo it's also we have to acknowledge a thriving music industry and I'm not gonna lie because we're in a country where it's such a struggle pretty much yeah to uplift local music there's admittedly a couple of things that we've seen work very well in the k-pop industry that maybe we'd like to see more of everywhere else i consider the korean entertainment industry as a robust one that is able to recognize innovation very quickly and adapt very quickly they're very good at finding what works from all of these different industries around the world and they take notes from it and then localize it to something that makes sense and something that works for them based on their culture. I think that has allowed them to really continue to thrive and become a cultural power. And we will try to scratch the surface of those things today. A couple of disclaimers. Mostly it's just a bit of an introduction and we're definitely limiting our scope. As long-term fans and as fans who sort of came in um, around the time of second gen, A lot of the examples that we're going to be using today are second-gen groups and artists. And that's just really because we've known them for longer. We've kind of been through a lot with them. This is not to say that the new groups or the older groups aren't doing this or aren't doing this well enough. It's really just that like we have the most experience with these groups that we're going to be talking about. Yes, we're basically limiting our scope to a few second-generation Korean pop groups purely in the interest of time. So just a heads up, nobody come yell at us on Twitter for this. I personally am of the belief that the K-pop industry model, for all of its flaws, really does sort of, I wouldn't say... It didn't really create it, but it really does like showcase a lot of really, really, really interesting and really good practices that I wished I saw in the Western music scene. One of them being the pop group model. And I have talked about this like super extensively with both Alanis and Nana in that what's for me very interesting about K-pop and like how they operate is that A lot of artists debut in groups, but they still are able to do solo stuff. That's because the group that they debut in is basically considered their home base. But, you know, individual members are able to branch out and it's not like a requirement for them to leave the group if they ever want to go solo. Yeah, and for a lot of groups that were huge for us as kids growing up, again, in the Western cultural dominance, that wasn't really the case. Nana, were you a fan of any Western pop groups as a kid? No. <laughs> I think I'm the one person here who did not like a pop group per se. That's interesting. I am a fan of like solo artists from the West. Right. But I don't think I was a huge fan of any one group. I mean, I guess the closest would have to be Little Mix. I love Little Mix. But um, what about older groups also, Nana? Oh, older stuff. 
Um, definitely, I was a huge fan of Spice Girls. I had a cassette tape for the, the Spice Girls. I would listen to it every single day to the point that my mom wanted to break the cassette tape. Oh my god, Nana, you are adorable. But yeah, the Spice Girls were not exempt. Um, also, they did eventually break up to be able to do their own thing. And like Victoria started building their like Beckham empire. Yeah, And that's the same story for a lot of Western groups that we grew up with, for maybe like, for example, Destiny's Child or... Or like Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake with NSYNC, Jane Finland with Westlife. The list goes on and on. The most recent big one being, let's face it talaga, you guys, I'm sorry, One Direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about One Direction in this podcast before. Extensively. Yes, and with K-pop, Though groups do break up quite often, there have been many cases where groups stay together while having successful solo ventures. Perhaps the most obvious one is a group that Nana and Clara have both talked about already, and that's Super Junior. There's a, there's a whole lot to say about them, but if we're talking pioneers um, in the sense of literally first group to do it, Super Junior is credited as the first group to really come out with subgroups, which is basically just like groups within the group. It sounds kind of convoluted, but basically it just means that there are different members who get to do their own thing, either as a smaller group, like a subunit, or as solo artists while still being in Super Junior. You have KRY, D&E, T, Super Junior M, aside from the very specific subgroups. Um, Hichol, for example, actually debuted as an actor before he debuted in Super Junior. He works primarily as the variety show personality these days. Yeah. But, you know, he's still very much active in Super Junior. He still sings on all of the records. He still performs with the group. Same with Itok, who is like mostly an MC these days also. Basically, with all of the members of Super Junior, they all do their own thing. And they all thrive as individuals. But at the end of the day, they're still very much a part of the main group. That's something that I really love about sort of the norm of the K-pop industry in that groups aren't seen as something that holds you back from going solo. Also, it's interesting to me because as an idol in the idol system of South Korea, you are trained to be good at everything. You have to know variety, hosting, dancing, singing, acting. You're really put into rigorous training for that. And What I think is interesting with Super Junior particularly is that they were all each able to find a place for themselves in a very competitive environment and showcased how that model works. I think it's also unique to Korea in that because boy bands or boy groups have to serve in the military, there are times when they can't perform as a group and that's when they start and that's, I guess, is the required part where they have to go on solo solo debuts. Yeah, you're so right, Nana. Um, the subunits and solos, especially when you think about it from the perspective of a bigger group, it's like, you know, capitalists going to capitalize. And it's to be able to still have active members that could be productive for a company while the group itself is on hiatus. And yeah, but I mean, you know, at least in a surface level way, I do think it allows individual members to explore outside of the group and to see how that plays into their longevity as a group. By the way, as like fans of Super Junior, do you guys have a favorite subunit or maybe a solo career trajectory from the members that you find interesting? 
this is literally just like you're trying to get me to choose between my favorite children. You know, it's just like this okay. is not gonna Sorry. work, Gladys. I will say though that I had a major soft spot for Super Junior M. Okay. And that's also because I have a major soft spot for like the M babies, like Henry and Jaume. I did really, really love that group. I was also gonna name drop Super Junior M because <laughs> Mary Yu is very much a bob for me. I remember when I went to a super show uh, when they sang uh, Mary Yu. It was one of the most killing moments of the, uh-huh. of the concert. I mean, obviously they weren't, they were saying quote unquote that they were singing it to all of us, but like, yeah, lol. Um, <laughs> asa. Asa, asa pa. But also because I have a soft spot for, for the M babies like Clea. But if I had to name someone's solo career that I really loved, it's actually Shindong. Honestly, oh, I can understand that. I absolutely love Shindong's career, especially into the radio, radio and MC scene. Like before I went into like the variety shows or like the radio shows, I had a handful of members that I knew stood out. And Shindong wasn't one of them. It wasn't something you expected yeah, from him. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, what I love about Shindong's solo track is how he got into Producing, producing and directing. Yeah, I was gonna say that too. He's been doing a lot of that. Yeah, he's working with different artists. He's doing music videos and shows and concerts. Pretty wild. Also, now I think a few SM The Stage ones, um, like the in-house comeback showcase thing that SM has been doing the past year. Oh yeah, he's basically contracted for the stage now, right? Yeah. That's really interesting. And with Super Junior and their second-generation contemporaries, they really sought to diversify what they can do knowing that you know the peak that you reach in idol superstardom doesn't last forever especially after you know the group goes through and finishes um, military enlistment and you know the industry doesn't get kinder as you grow older and so they were really able to hone what they could do and carve out a place for themselves which I think is fun to see as a fan and again you see this a lot in second generation artists where they have found Um, maybe genres that they excel at with their solo work or are steadily growing actors and actresses or are getting into the radio variety show game or are like mentors in shows or are in businesses and fashion um, ventures, all of these things. Um, I would say similar to Suju, Big Bang comes to mind when it comes to like the four members being successful and they're very different solo careers. And speaking of Big Bang, actually, what I love about Big Bang specifically is that they were also one of the first few groups to really break the mold or the idea that K-pop idols were basically there to perform and not participate in the creation of the music or the product or whatever you want to call it. I think Big Bang is a great example of how involved artists can be in their music, really, as a group and as artists. Yeah, I agree. Around the time that Big Bang debuted, there was already an idol system in place. There were norms, there were rules, there were roles, there were certain sounds and trends that were reflective of the time. And with every system, there will always be people coming into the scene to change that. And I do think Big Bang was definitely one of them. Not just with how they looked, but the sound that they were going for, the background of the members, like with Top T.O.P. coming from the underground hip-hop scene. And, you know, of course, the creative control that the members had. 
while they weren't the first to have creative involvement and creative control in what they do, I do think that it was the level of that involvement and the success that came with it that was a game changer. Because they kind of had that um, creative control and involvement from the get-go. Ji Young, Ji Dragon, gets sole credit on the music and lyrics of Lies. Of course, with the arrangement of the Brave Brothers. But again, like, so music and lyrics, soul credit. And this was just their second single ever. And it was such a hit. It really was a moment. And because they proved that the model that they began with could be changed, I would argue that they now influenced a big part of the new model of the idol system, like having high tone and low tone rappers to the infusion of high fashion into K-pop. And a lot more, like a lot more idols are starting to like help in the production process and in the creation process, aside from just singing or rapping. Right, yeah. Yeah, they along with, I would argue, um, Jonghyun from Shiny were really the idols that by producing and by having creative control showed exactly what being an artist means while also being within that idol system. Mm -hmm. And I can't really credit Big Bang with starting it, but I will say that they really kind of like showed the industry that it was possible to be popular without compromising artistic integrity and like really pushing for different sounds, just a different package altogether. During this time, like the idol system in place was very kind of clean cut. If it was edgy, it was deceptively edgy and that, you know, it was manufactured to look edgy. And with Big Bang, I think people were like, oh, this is like a very commercially successful K-pop group who is like genuinely rough around the edges. That was a really big thing in the industry at the time. Like they debuted roughly at the same time as Super Junior, I think. Sometime around 06, 07. 2006, yes. So, you know, that was great because you had groups like Super Junior and TVXQ, you know, who were very polished and who were very put together. Then you had Big Bang, who was very um, kind of scrappy in like a really nice way. And then you had like a lot of the other up and coming groups who were just kind of finding their feet within like those two different extremes. It made for a very interesting industry at the time, for sure. Yes, and I know there's a lot of controversy around Big Bang and they're a very polarizing figure that I don't have the energy to dissect it right now, but at least in their careers, they continue to be trailblazers and are acknowledged in spaces beyond K-pop. Additionally, and this is a credit to Ji Young really, is that he is such a... <laughs> He is such a visionary when you think about like all of the new things he was able to introduce to K-pop. You know, from from light sticks to self-production to using USBs as a distribution platform. Oh my god, do not get me started <laughs> on the USB of the Kwon Ji Young album. We will be here all day. Yeah, it's just genuinely, if there is any one K-pop artist, I think has been an absolute pioneer in artist creativity, it's G-Dragon for sure. Aside from music, also I think that within the second gen came a number of standout changes in terms of having a little bit more freedom and a little bit more control just as a professional artist and entertainer really. Again, we're all aware, industries systematically exploitative, but changes I feel really do make a difference and we've seen that in our years as second-gen fans. 
And often I think when people first hear or think of K-pop, because of the way it's othered, it seems more manufactured for some reason. Seems like all of the artists are all powerless and like completely without agency, which I think is a very complicated issue that can't be viewed in a black or white way. But what do you guys think? I think it depends on the company. It all falls down to the company. Because there are definitely like companies like SM. I, I hope SM doesn't sue us for this. <laughs> But like um, there are companies like SM who definitely have problems with artist independence. Uh, I mean, one, for example, is like EXO's Chinese members. And then there's Jessica from SNSD. It's definitely a problem for SM in general. But it's not as if like they're completely without it. Like, I mean, I think they just have their favorites or they, they like to follow their own time and tune on when to do things. For me, with like agency and powerlessness in the K-pop industry, I think that it really is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. In that there are definitely some artists who have a little more agency, whether creatively or personally or professionally, than others. You know, I obviously don't know the ins and outs of the industry. I can't speak to why that happens. But I agree with you, Alanis, that it's like, it's definitely not a black or white thing. I don't think that any artist is entirely powerless, but I also don't think that all of them or any of them are in full creative control. It really just depends on where they fall in the spectrum. Not to defend the industry and the weird things that happen in it, but I mean, I would argue that that's true for basically any other music industry that's out there. Yeah, I really do think all of this is a spectrum. And I agree also, Nana, that I think the company really is the big factor in this. Especially when you look at, you know, what resources are available to them, how they use their resources, if they're used against or for the people in the company. Um, smaller to medium-sized entertainment companies often lack resources. And so that kind of breeds ground for um, more exploitative practices. And then their situation with contracts when you go to bigger companies where, you know, they can favor the artists more or they can control the artists more. It all highly depends. And I do think money drives all of this for sure. And again, it's really complex, especially if you look at it from like different cases. Also, I don't think that everything is bleak necessarily. When you're up against systemic industry issues, small changes can make big waves. Yeah. And I'm thinking of a few benchmark changes. This is first gen, but um, Xinhua. <laughs> spent years and years and years in a lawsuit so that they could keep their name outside of the company. Yes. And then the TVXQ lawsuits, which changed contract lengths for idols. And, you know, now we've seen more artists setting up their own agencies, sometimes as a group, as was the case with Highlight, sometimes with imprints, like with Super Junior and label SJ, sometimes as one-man agencies, and sometimes as just downright CEOs like Yubin from The Wonder Girls, who also recruited them to be in her agency. I would like to hope that it means that the industry is taking note that artists can make their own creative and personal and professional decisions and still be successful. Especially like in the older, in the previous years. I think 
the biggest reasons why rules were so stringent was because they were trying to make it big. There was this like very outdated, very archaic idea of like in order to succeed, you have to be controlled in some capacity. I think with so many artists um, finding their footing within the industry in different capacities, um, I'm hoping this means that labels are taking note that, you know, all artists really need is like help, not like a full on like controlled situation. Yes, I hope so too. And while I do think the idea of business control persists and sometimes giving artists freedom can be performative, I hope we continue to see artists fight back and succeed. And I really think that those, you know, small and large victories have piled up to essentially create the standards of the K-pop industry that we know today. And I like to think that it's getting better. Like, I remember I saw an article about how, like, for example, BTS was being given shares for the company. I don't think that's the first time that that's happened. SM artists have a lot. Yeah, see? But I think that they're being given the option now very publicly is improvement in itself. To be honest, also, I think that new opportunities and new ideas have opened up for artists now because of the expansion of K-pop. This is going to sound very globalization-esque. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. But I don't think we can discount the effect of having more markets. Obviously, there are a lot of pros and cons to that. But yes, the boom of Korean entertainment has allowed for kind of a wider net. There are some artists that are bigger in other countries, and so they can so they can concentrate on those. And that strategy isn't new, even if some of the markets are We can trace this back to older groups, especially for me, the second generation with the first Hallyu wave, which which opened the floodgates of the interest in K-pop. For sure. And when we're looking at sort of like the spread of K-pop on like uh, on a global scale, we can point to Japan as one of the first few foreign markets. And I would say two artists that really, really showed you know the industry that it was possible to penetrate a different market were Kara, who we absolutely adore, and also like Boa. Boa, the queen herself. We cannot talk about the spread of K-pop without Boa. She is the blueprint. I always say K-pop, as we know it today, would not be possible ever without Boa. There are so many disputes about who the the kings of K-pop are, like the best group or the best whatever, but like Boa is like queen. There's no other way to say it. I actually might have to correct myself. I think Bo was the first Korean <laughs> idol or K-pop artist that I listened to. I guess because you were immersed in, in K-pop, K-pop right? Yeah, now. yeah. I'm pretty sure I realized late. Like, I obviously I knew before today, but like, I realized late. I think I was already in high school or like entering college when I found out that Boa was actually originally a K-pop artist. Boa is incredible and she's, if you look at her career thus far, you can very clearly see that like she split her time between Korea and Japan. Same goes with Kara, honestly, who I think have more Japanese releases than they do Korean releases. And we talk about this in the context of strategic marketing, not just in the sense that, oh, they promoted in Japan. It's like, no, these people, like, they released songs in Japanese under Japanese labels. And it was just so incredible to see, like, that 
intersection of Korean and Japanese music and influences in what they did. Also, it's interesting because one of the indicators of success for a lot of K-pop groups is when they perform in Tokyo Dome. Yes. Oh, that's so true. The moment you fill out Tokyo Dome, you've made it. Absolutely. What I do really like about, you know, Kara and Bo and all of these, like, different releases is that the k-pop industry understands that like different markets want different things and so you know it's not a matter of like releasing a a deluxe edition that's only available in japan or like a a special vinyl collection that's only available in europe or whatever these are like full discographies full albums full singles full productions released with the market in mind when it was designed that's such a rare thing outside of like east asian music i think yeah absolutely and that shows how important the japanese market became to the k-pop industry that they would cater to the taste of that audience i'm wondering also though aside from karen boa is there any korean artist with the japanese discography that you really like i like shinies shinies is really good I would also say Shiny or actually SNSD because I really like Taxi in Japanese. Oh, no, yeah, Girls' Generation had a really good discography. Yeah, okay, same with me. Honestly, Boa, Kara, SNSD, and Shiny are probably my top ones, but special shout out to Taemin just because I think Famous is ridiculously good. But yeah, again, I do think the success that Boa and TVXQ and Kyra and all of these people that followed in Japan, you know, especially with all the politics mixed in with all that, it definitely opened up K-pop to the Asian market. And and despite what current fan culture will tell you, success in the Asian market is valid success. It really is. And the thing that frustrates me genuinely is that somehow, some way, these days, the only marker of success is success in the American market. Obviously, it makes a lot of sense for people to think that like American success is very difficult to come by. And it is. So, you know, success in the States should be celebrated. But at the same time, I really don't like how success in the States or no success in the States somehow invalidates success in other places. Though, to be fair, I do think that's just in the case of fans. I mean, businesses know where there is a market, especially a sure market. And sometimes you can see instances where choices are made, where promotions are more focused in bigger, more committed markets such as Japan and China. So I think the argument could be made that the Western focus happened because there was a significant loss in the Chinese market after the political complications of recent years. But Either way, I think modern stand culture seems to forget that success for an artist comes in different forms. They're valid. (laughs) For me, at least before the boom of K-pop in the West, or well, before it became super mainstream like it is now, to me, um, the success of K-pop wasn't necessarily them being successful in the US. It was them being able to go up on a global stage wherever it was. For me, it just goes back to that concept of like othering in that somehow it only makes sense if it's rooted in the West. That's really such a major frustration of mine because there's so much good music that's being like created in this world that we live in. You know, sometimes it's only popular 
in your country. Sometimes it becomes strangely popular in one country that you wouldn't think it was popular in. Those are all forms of success. But again, this is not to say that success in the Western market is invalid and did nothing for the, you know, boom of K-pop or or that the industry did not consider the market at all. I would argue that in the same way that having Japanese releases and anime outros became a strategy for K-pop, virality became a primary strategy for the Western market. Obviously, now with new tech and with social media and the era of streaming, we're so used to things going viral, but, you know, that was not always the case. For sure. Like, the use of virality in K-pop is still such a very interesting thing to me. The ones that come to mind, obviously, are Gangnam Style by Sai and Nobody by the Wonder Girls. Yes. <laughs> when they came out, you guys were already fans, right? So, like, what did you actually think of Nobody and Gangnam Style when it came out? I wasn't a fan of Gangnam Style. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm still not a fan of Gangnam Style. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> At least from in my opinion. What made Gangnam Style a hit was the meme of the video. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Gangnam Style was a fun song, but it was viral because of the video. Yes. I was definitely like, oh no, it's not for me. Like, I get how funny the video is, but like, no, it's not for me. Nobody was more of like, it's okay. Listen, as a Wonder Girls fan... Like you guys and Suju, nobody is an amazing song, but it's definitely not the Wonder Girls song either. So just putting that out there. But it was pretty fun. But I wasn't like super crazy about it. I mean, I don't think any of the songs that I'm super crazy about ever went viral. I actually really liked Nobody when it came out. It was cute. I enjoyed it definitely in its original Korean more than the English version. I don't know. I My experience with, with K-pop idols making full English songs have not been good. Like for example The Boys of, of SNSD when that came out. I was cringing so hard. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I was wondering why? Why did you attempt this? <laughs> Yeah, the first ventures into English versions of Korean songs really were not my favorite. But having several groups promote in America after the viral hits was, I think, the moment when the industry thought, oh, maybe it was actually possible. America is the market and we should try and tap it, basically. Yeah, and you know, there are different levels of success to that. But yeah, it was a more solid venture into the Western market. Yeah. And obviously, K-pop has enjoyed considerable, significant success in America, especially recently. Huge congratulations to BTS for the Grammy nominations because, like, that was unthinkable, you know, for K-pop, like, what, 10 years before. But yeah, for sure, it was, like, it was a slow, it was a very slow build, starting all the way from, like, Seven, who I don't, like, I don't even remember, like, when he attempted the debut. But, like, from Seven to the Wonder Girls, Mm -hmm. and then, like, later there was SNSD also. There were just so many who sort of just, like, kind of chipped away at it, and then suddenly there were, like, dream concerts in the Staples Center, and then suddenly, like, SM Town. SM Town, yeah, absolutely. Madison Square Garden. Yeah, oh my god, the Madison Square Garden show was so good. All of that, I think, for all the shit we give the American market, it is a huge metric of success, and it is, like, it is very much a difficult thing to get into. So, you know, kudos to all of the artists who 
kind of like chipped away at that until the artists now can really enjoy like space for K-pop and for Korean music in general. I think chipping away, Clea, is accurate. But also looking at the bigger picture, it's not just in terms of Korean music, but Korean media, Korean technology, Korean products. I mean, just Samsung for starters. So it was really a culmination of all of these things that led to Korean media and Korean music becoming what it is now. I think a lot of people forget that the concept of Hallyu doesn't necessarily just apply to K-pop. Oh no. The Hallyu wave, as a lot of people call it, really was the the world embracing Korean culture through different forms of Korean media, be that, you know, dramas or variety shows or music or pretty much anything. But also because they decided to make it their export product. Exactly, exactly, exactly. We actually did, like, papers and cases on, like, the Hallyu wave back in college about this. The fact alone that they created a department just for for the Hallyu wave and then made it their export product to all other countries was, for me, very unique. Like, yes, mm-hmm. there are countries that have a department of culture, but the culture is, like, lumped up together with, like, arts and, and tourism in general. But if I remember correctly, it did start out with tourism. Like, they were using K-pop idols to promote tourism. As tourism yeah. ambassadors, yeah. Yeah. So, I think they switched it up afterwards. Like, instead of getting people to go to Korea, to come to Korea, why not just share Korea with the rest of the world? Which I think is, like, super brilliant. Especially now, in, 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 in quarantine, where you can't go to Korea. I have the same sentiments. And this is also what I mean about the Korean industry being robust because in lockdown, especially in the middle of 2020, they were the ones that still had content being churned out because they've invested so much in it throughout the years. Adapt to the stringent and adaptive pandemic response of their government in general. And, you know, because of that, even if it's minimal, they are still able to operate things enough. And had quite a backlog, too, that they could offer for streaming and viewing. And none of these things happened overnight. It was because they had been investing and preparing for the export of their media for some time now. Yes, I agree. I definitely envy how the Korean media was able to cope so well with COVID. Like, I remember during the start of quarantine here in the Philippines, I was heavily watching variety shows from Korea. And I was expecting, like, I was half expecting, like, the same thing that I got from Western media, where late night talks suddenly became an at-home thing <laughs> from, from with webcams and, like, and that it was, it was really disorganized. Like, honestly, that was some of the lowest points in Western media. <laughs> and it's honestly very funny. But I was so amazed, like, for example, with Running Man. They were still going out. They were still doing all these games. They were doing all these challenges in, like, buildings and, like, renting out these places. Because they had actual... Um, ways to deal with COVID. But even moving out of the, you know, the quarantine situation, honestly, just the fact that they really decided to export culture, essentially, and really, like, and really support it, like, institutionally is major and like in media we talk a lot about like soft power and influence and all of these things and really what 
just happens is that, you know, because of Korean media, whether they're dramas or music or what have you, so many more people are interested in visiting Korea. So many people are like learning the language, the writing system, adapting like different things that they've learned in Korea, like uh, that are rooted in Korean culture. And that's such a big win for Korea in general, because not only are people, you know, consuming the media that they put out, people are also through that media getting more and more involved in their culture. I think that it is an amazing thing as well that when I read up on a very brief history of Korea in this book that I have, it's very interesting because there was a point in the 1900s where Korea was very much as much of a third world country, like like the Philippines. After the civil war in Korea, like South Korea was one of the least developed countries yes. in Asia. Yes, and like, and they were even saying like there was nothing that they could really export. There was nothing that they could really specialize in because like Korea now is like one of the big ones in terms of technology, especially with Samsung. But Japan also still holds a stronghold in that in that department. And it's very interesting to me that Korea found oh, something to export that no one else can copy, and it's culture. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, the Korean War happened, what, 1950? It's been like, what, 70 years? The fact that they were able to go from like one of the lowest points of like the Asian economy to like where they are now is absolutely incredible. And that's so much to do with you know, being able to export culture and being able to support what is actually theirs. Yes. Nana, when you said you envy Korea and their pandemic response, I mean, same. (laughs) Any competent pandemic response, I'm jealous. But honestly, also I envy South Korea and their institutional support for the arts and the preservation and cultivation of their culture and collective history you know, instead of the erasure of culture, art, and history that we've been grappling with for so long. Absolutely. Um, it's so disheartening to see artists struggle against a system that's so stacked up against them and then would turn around and use them for hashtag Pinoy Pred without even the bare minimum support. I personally have been like in a in a weird like Filipino media renaissance. I've been watching a lot of like shows and movies and like listening to a lot of OPM that I've kind of like neglected to listen to for a while. And honestly, the Philippines comes out with some pretty incredible things. Oh yeah. And if we only were able to support our artists and our content creators and, you know, actually create and provide systems that allow these people to thrive, this would be such a different conversation. And so that's why when people were criticizing the consumption of Korean media in the early months of quarantine, for me, I felt like the discourse failed to look at the big picture, uh, aside from content analysis, that as much as we would want Philippine media to take center stage, we just do not have the national institutional support and um, the systems in place for us to cultivate that. Our culture hasn't valued our culture in a really long time. This is really all to say the K-pop industry and the Korean media industry in general has taught us that as long as a country is able to support its arts and culture and is able to really like push it to thrive, so many good things can happen. 
And this isn't, of course, elevating any government. There's plenty of nuances to this also, of course, that we cannot fit into this episode. But I guess as like a final like discussion point, you know, culture and the arts should be valued. Right. And music and dramas and art and all of these like cultural entertainment things are essentially a gateway into understanding more cultures. And, you know, like we wish, like not just in the Philippines, but like we really wish that other countries, especially the ones with thriving art scenes who aren't quite as popular or quite as mainstream, are able to replicate the the cultural significance that the Korean industry is able to like put on its products and it, to be able to share their cultures through the media that they create and consume. And generally, what I would like to see really like at the end of the day is people accepting and appreciating content for what it is, which is really just good content. There doesn't have to necessarily be like a geographical distinction of, oh, this is such an exotic, you know, thing, or this is so different from what I'm used to. Like, when you are able to appreciate content that comes from different places, it really does seem like you've opened yourself up to like a wealth of new experiences. And like Bong Joon-ho says it best. When he says, Once you overcome the one-inch-tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. Which I think is my final say on the topic. Um, related to how, to one of our previous discussions on like how media or like my family told me like, how can you understand music that is not in English? I think music is great in that, in that way that it transcends language. And K-pop definitely transcended through the English, through the English language. Like for me, I firmly believe that Korean songs are great as it is. They don't have to release English songs. Um, if they want to, fine, go ahead. For me, what makes K-pop great is is the way that they sound when they sing rap in Korean. I absolutely agree. And with that, thank you so much, Nana, for entertaining us with this request of talking about K-pop for basically three hours. (laughs) Yes, it was very fun. I mean, I, I love the topic. It's never tiring to talk about it. Hello, everyone. So this isn't our usual outro. The episode you just heard was recorded in November of 2020. And since then, a lot of cool things has happened from second-gen comebacks, from artists we've mentioned in this episode, to great girl groups like the Brave Girls finally getting recognition, and even historic group moves for longevity like GOT7. But also, in the last few months, we have been seeing the increase in anti-Asian hate crimes, and we thought we would be remiss not to acknowledge the grief and pain and anger of the Asian American community towards these injustices. And as we remember and celebrate the lives of the victims, we condemn these acts of racism. And we hope that we are all able to do our part and take action in any way that we can. So we will be sharing resources in our show notes and on our Twitter at InMediasMess. And we hope all of you continue to be safe 
and continue to fight injustice in this world. We will talk to you guys next time.